Welcome to the Painting of the Week podcast, where we look at some of the most significant paintings throughout history. Introducing your hosts, Phil Grabsky and Laura Bentham. I've got my, I've got bits and notes everywhere, Phil, today. Good, because ah, here we are. We're on. <laughs> Welcome to this week's Painting of the Week. And uh, you're... I'm Laura. And I'm Phil. <laughs> today... Uh, we're looking at a uh, painting that Laura's chosen and uh, can talk a little bit about, which is uh, by Bridget Riley, British, uh, still alive, isn't she? She is. British 1931, she was born. British contemporary artist. Mm. And the piece is called? Uneasy Centre. Uneasy Centre. it was done in 1963. 1963, when... Well, when I was born, but more to the point, when she was 31 or 32. I think actually I love Bridget Riley, but I think you chose the painting. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think I, that will become clear later. All right. I did have a reason for choosing it. Exactly. Right, which we'll talk about. Yeah. But the good news with Bridget Riley is I've been to one of her exhibitions in Birmingham in oh. 2010. All right. Tell me about Bridget Riley. I don't know too much about Bridget uh, Riley. She was born in London. And she spent most of her childhood in Cornwall. Okay. During the war and things like that. Which is, that... is where she wasn't really, obviously, just as a child. And she said, but a lot of her influence comes from the light and looking at the scenery in Cornwall. But then. Is she, she part of the St. Ives group? Is that where she I went? So. I don't know. That I didn't see. Okay. But she did go to Goldsmiths. Yeah. And then she went to the Royal Academy. Both in London. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And. She's, I mean, her early days were classical trained and she loved, you know, Impressionist Monet Matisse and then she found Seurat and that was the turning point, I believe, for her with, uh, which I'm sure, I'm sure you know. Matt no, but this is, him. okay, an interesting, so this is an interesting moment for those of you who are not already looking at it. If you have the possibility, if you're not, you know, listening to this on a jog or something. We say this every time. <laughs> um, but uh, go to the Seventh Art Productions website, so S-E-V-E-N-T-H-A-R-T.com, and go to the Painting of the Week podcast. Uh, watch out, because I also write uh, Painting of the Week um, blogs from time to time so this obviously is the podcast and then look at the picture and then you just heard about a little bit about her background and you know being influenced by Monet and Manet and and then Matisse and Surat and then look at this picture that's quite a journey anyway so well the Surat how, how was, the big, was the pointillism right do you know him about him yes good so please I knew you would um, that was her ma her major influence was him. Sura is, uh, I think, it's extraordinary what he. So pointillism is basically little points of colour. Yeah. And if you've ever, it's a bit less so these days. In the old days, if you looked really, really closely at a television screen, you just see little points of colour. Um, but as you move further and further away, of course that congeals, if that's the right word, but it forms into um, a recognisable image. Um, TV, actually, red, green, blue, those are the three colours. And from that, 
all images were created. Well, anyway, the pointillists took that a stage further, whereby they would use these points of colour, really, really detailed. And if you stood at a certain distance from the painting, it revealed itself as a river scene, for example. Um, And you can see this at the National Gallery in London and plenty of other galleries. Um, It's extraordinarily clever. Mm. Um, I find myself being amazed by the technique of it and not necessarily being that moved emotionally by it. Um, it's, It's almost a bit over-engineered in some ways you know you know the ideal painting and i had this recently looking at some caravaggios is one that genuinely moves you i don't think pointillism genuine genuinely moves me but it was certainly an interesting period and again it's that you talked about this the other day the impressionists they're all different individuals and they're all exploring art in slightly different ways but they all well not all of them but Many of them, most of them got slightly frustrated with Impressionism and then started to move into other directions. And Surat was one of those. So, yeah, so he's, he's working with dots of colour, which when seen from, what, two metres maybe, yeah. um, form themselves into a recognisable, more than that, um, painting. Is he the main one that... He's the most famous oh, that Okay. I mean, Pissarro, we're, we're currently making a film about Pissarro. He explored it too. Okay. Um, and of course, you take this, you, you, if you keep pushing this idea, then you actually end up at its most extreme with a canvas which is just one colour. Right. But before that, you might end up with um, people like Mondrian, who was working in blocks of colour, mm-hmm. Rothko working in blocks of colour. Um, now, there'll come a point, and of course, this point happened for the conservative art lover in the mid-19th century, that they thought the Impressionists had already gone too far. They wanted something which was, they were only be just about beginning to understand this term, but in our eyes, it was photographic. Right, yeah. So, um, you know, what impressed them about a Titian or a Leonardo or a Vermeer is that, or a Rembrandt, well... Even, not so much Rembrandt, is that it's, it's as close to reality, on a surface level, it's as close, close to reality as possible. Um, to get to the Impressionists, on one level, of course, it's not realistic, it's not no. a photograph, no. but it is realistic in the yeah. sense that you know what the scene is and it's conveying the narrative and the storyline and the emotion of that scene. But for some people, it felt like, I mean, there's one famous comment, the guy said, you know, I don't want to see skies the colour of melted butter or something like that. But I mean, it was, um, what did we just see the other day where it was, uh, the trees were purple. Who was that? Oh, Gauguin. Oh, yeah, in our film that's just coming out now, Danish Collector, we talk about Gauguin and he does this, he does this very beautiful painting actually, but he's got four tree trunks. They're all purple. We don't really, you know, when do you see a purple tree trunk? But you buy <laughs> exactly. Um, so it, so then there comes a point where, well, how how far can you go along this line of something becoming less and less realistic? And then so you get to Van Gogh. There's nothing nothing realistic about Van Gogh. No. If you saw somebody walk, you know, sitting in a chair. 
like a, like in the Van Gogh painting. If you saw them in real life, you 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 know you'd call an ambulance, wouldn't you? But in the but, but in the painting, yeah, you totally buy into it. And then it goes further. So you know you start with you know with Matisse, end of his life, he's doing cutouts, yeah, in, exactly, in blocks of color. Mm. But those blocks of color color create swimming pools or create gardens or. Um, and as I say, you keep pushing it and keep pushing it, you end up with a black canvas or a white canvas or a blue canvas. Um, well, I think, and that's kind of where she went, I think. I yeah, mean, so back to... We'd love to have her in and have an interview with her. Mm. But it was, I think it was early 60s and she did The Kiss, 1961, and it was just down to two, black and white, and she did many, many paintings. So what does The Kiss, I don't know, what's The Kiss look like? Ah, it's quite difficult to explain, but I'll do my best. It's black. It's got a third, of, about a third of the way up. There's a white line, and then a like a semicircle comes across it. So as you move across the painting, it moves. Okay. And that's, I believe, where she must have really got started with her so you movements know, of the black and white. So paintings. If you didn't have the name caption on the wall next to the painting, would you have any idea what it was? No. No. But I think that's what she did with her. Um, I have actually looked at her now because I think that's what she did with a lot of her titles. She didn't make them too clear because every single person that looks at one of her pieces is going to see something different. Yeah. In actual fact, it's almost like when you go into her exhibition, because everyone's tall, if, or short or, you know, in different, mm -hmm. just completely different, looking at it from a different angle in every way, the paintings are, are different for everybody. Mm. They're really, really clever. And they definitely make your eyes go mm. all over the place. As in with, with Uneasy Centre, um, we're, we were talking, we're talking about, yeah. about today, Yeah, we were already talking about it, weren't we? Do you see the cent the circles coming out? Do you see the circles going in? Yeah. So, but that was that's and her titles are the same. I mean, if you saw that painting, you were kiss. I don't know where mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. black meets the white, mm -hmm. or where the black meets the the white, the black line. I don't know. So, it's all is, about the movement. And is she part of the? "Quote unquote swinging sixties." Well, I would have a hundred percent thought so, yeah. because yeah. those black and white movement in squares is her most famous one, and where she makes the little tiny squares go small in the middle. So the mirror is so clever. So I have seen um, artworks, or sometimes they're not even called artworks, really, but where when you look at something, there's an it has an optical impact on your brain and you get the brain that struggles to compute exactly what it's looking at. Um, is that what she's engaged in? Yeah. She's engaged in, I mean, she's deliberately trying to kind of trick you. No, I think she's just trying to get you to look at things slightly, completely differently. Right. Because when you're looking at one of the other paintings that we've looked at, you pretty much know what we're looking at. Girl with a pearl earring. Yeah. Is a girl with a pearl earring. Yeah. So, but with Bridget Riley, it's up to you what you're looking at, really. Yeah. So there's no, she has given them titles. Uh, the other one that's quite similar to Uneasy Centre is Blaze, really similar. Yeah. It's all got sort of zigzag lines. 
but your eyes do go, they definitely go funny. My mind do. Everyone does, I'm sure. Mm. So, yeah. So when you look at Uneasy Centre, mm. which, which we're not. We're not even looking at <laughs> so, I've got a cup of tea. <laughs> We've completely gone off piste. <laughs> so let's... Um, but when you look at Uneasy Centre, what do you... Um, oh, I really love it. What does it make you think of? Well, initially my eyes go funny, and then you just feel like you're being sucked into the painting. Yeah. It's a tunnel. Same for you? Yeah, for me it's... it's um, like a wormhole, isn't it? And mm. I guess it also reminds me, well, now, I'm not sure it would have reminded me, I'm not sure what I thought it was at the time, but now it reminds me of, you know, Star Trek and Star Wars and, yeah. you know, those kind of where they, where they shoot, you know, warp factor, whatever, however high they go, max. Oh, yes. And they go through the universe. And yes. Black holes. Yeah. Um and it's yeah, he's spinning around. I mean, mm. the way in which the eye can be tricked really fascinates me. There's a wonderful example uh, where this guy does these chalk drawings on the floor. Right. But you would not step on them because it, it looks like yeah. you're falling. You know, yeah. he's done different ones. He's done one where I think it was like over a cliff edge. Yeah. And um. you know it's a pavement. Actually, this wasn't the pavement. I think this was in a store. Anyway, wherever it was, you know that there's a floor and it's chalk. Yeah. But you would not step on it because your brain's saying, no, that's a cliff edge. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I think we forget the brain is a kind of trained instrument and it just, sometimes it just overrides, you know, that battle between consciousness and subconsciousness. You know, what you've learned in the past and what you're learning in the moment. And sometimes they don't all compute. So you look at that uneasy center, you know it's flat. Yeah. It must be, you know, it's a flat image. There's nothing. Mm. And mm. yet you are utterly convinced that there is depth there. So That's you why could, you were at her exhibition, everyone's kind of standing and yeah. moving around. Probably not like any other exhibition you may go to. I don't know. So what was this? Known as then, I mean, what was she? Opt it, art. Well, why? Why opt? <laughs> so I looked it up. Opt arts was the term first used. Time magazine, nineteen sixty-four. Okay, so straight after her. A blend of optical and pop art. Mm-hmm. And then from the, from then on, so optical art. Mm, making your eyes look at things differently. I'm assuming. Oh. Yeah. So. And did she continue in this vein? She did black and white for a long, long time. And then she did start to come with colours. And actually, I bet you many people stand in some of her exhibitions because a lot of them are just lines of colours, mm. different ways. And you're like, oh, anyone can do that. You know how people do. It's and we've all done it. We have. I'm sure I've been in an exhibition and gone, oh, I reckon I can do It does that. feel, though, I mean, again, it's us looking back. And, mm. and of course... The images, the image we get of a period is filtered through films and television, and the cliches get repeated. And but you do feel that this kind of exhibition would be, you know, like uneasy sense. It would be white walls, 
Yeah. And you'd have Twiggy and yeah, exactly. John Paul, you know. Mary Quant. Mary Quant. And they'd probably be dressed in black and white. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it all feels of a one, doesn't it? Yeah. That there was a moment of re-examining, being bold, and even being in black and white feels bold. And yet it also for us kind of works because some of that imagery is, you know, a lot of that imagery is black and white. Um when you look at her colour paintings, that she merges them in such a way that they do then turn into different colours. And, oh, they are, I mean, they're really something. I've watched a couple of now little documentaries about her watching her work where she's just cutting out tiny pieces of paper and fixing them next to some colours and, you know, moving them around. And you say all the time, nothing... nothing's for normal everything's for a reason so I do say that quite mm. a lot I mean um, I do know some of her later kind of coloured works and do you like them Phil? they remind me of kind of kids blankets yeah and uh, it I don't I can't see that, like in some of them where they are just kind of blocks of diagonal colour or horizontal colour, I don't quite see where it goes, where it moves beyond the the random. Right. So, um, you know, she's just, I can't, if there is something there about why the reds and the oranges and the whites and the purples and the blues are kind of in that order, I can't quite see it. I can't, in a way... But again, because it's interesting rather than particularly moving, those kind of black and white works that she did where with wavy, you know, wavy lines or black and white squares disappearing into the distance are kind of more interesting because you think, wow, how did you do that? Yeah, okay. So you prefer the black and white ones to the colours? Yeah. Mm. I love the black and white. But I love the colour because obviously I've gone back to my quilts again. Well, that was what I was thinking. To me, you can there's such a clear connection mm. to some art, you know, you know, it's like a Tracy Emin and her quilts and oh, yeah. Howard Hodgkin, of course. Yes. We we looked at before. Yeah. You can see a connection. Yeah. I've actually got a quilt, funnily enough, that I have been doing for about five years, mm. which is all sort of coloured triangles. And I still haven't finished it because I kind of so I'm so into it now that there's a couple I just can't every time I put them together they're wrong to me so I do understand that with colours I'm like no it doesn't look right still can't finish it well I mean so there is that sense I I, I have it in making films where sometimes I'll say well why did you cut that shot to that shot and sometimes there isn't really an articulate answer it just feels right yeah and I'm sure with her with the colours um it just it just feels right and you take from it what you you know it has an impact upon you and it doesn't or it doesn't you know she's almost giving up control in some ways an artist like caravaggio mm. uh he is trying to communicate with you he's trying to tell you certain things he's trying to move you in a certain direction mm-hmm. um i think i think with the kind of work that bridget riley's doing it's kind of different it's like She's encouraging a response, but she's not really in control of what that response is. 
So the black and white ones, you get more of a physical. Do you think you get more of a physical movement? Whereas the coloured ones, the colours well, change for you? I'm not, I'm not an expert on Bridget Riley. Oh, well, neither am I. <laughs> but but the black and, white, black and white ones to me are <laughs> impressive in the sense of that's really clever and... Yeah. It really, you know, she's completely smashed the idea of a two-dimensional flat plane. To, to, and I, and I, so I'm, I'm kind of questioning my own, you know, my eyes and my brain and what I'm looking at. The colour one feels more an exploration and an enjoyment of colour. Yeah. Without any necessary, you know, of course now, I don't know, I mean, there's... there's it almost feels like, I mean, some of her works feel like wrapping paper that you buy for Christmas presents. Mm-hmm. Don't they? It's, mm-hmm. it's probably quite, it's probably, it's more common now. Yeah. Actually, didn't Paul Smith do a whole lot of colours? Didn't he do a, a thing yeah, of colours? Yeah. I think that was one of, one of his things he did for a long, long time. I once bought a shirt from Paul Smith. Have you got one? <laughs> With the colours. Where it was all lots straight lines of colour. Yeah. yeah. In fact, that, I, I never thought about it. In fact, it, I bet it's. It could easily have been based on Bridget Ryan. Now I think about it. You know, my friend used to buy all of that. She used to love those colours. So you need to get your, you need to get your Paul Smith shirt out. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I wonder if I, just, I don't know if I've still got it. I hope you have. Um, really good. But she definitely, definitely, I love. I, I, uh, her work's massive. The exhibition was brilliant. And it had it had a good energy. That's how I felt about that exhibition. If you took the kids in, which we did, then mm. it was um, it was it was fun for the children. They enjoyed it, and they whizzed around. And I'm sure she would have loved that because, as an artist, you want to see young people enjoying your work. Interesting, isn't it? Whether um, if you did a film, I think I mean I think you could make a great film about it, but. You know, would would people come? One, not knowing her name so well, perhaps compared to a Van Gogh or a Rembrandt, yeah. and two, you know, would you know? You'd obviously choose the poster image quite carefully, as you always do. But would it be enough to get people in? I don't really know because it's a. I'm sure we could do a good film. Well, then would it make all your eyes go funny when you're watching it? <laughs> <laughs> so, because when you're making a film about Caravaggio. What sort of movement are you getting? Is you getting that where the, the eyes follow you around the room? Like in the, some old films. I no, don't know. <laughs> no, Caravaggio is is um <laughs> it, it it hits you in the face straight away because it's so powerful. Mm. But then what the film is pointing out is you then need to you need to look. Yeah. And look quite hard. And some of it is on the basis of having a knowledge of Christian iconography. And some of it is, even if you don't know a Christian, like if you don't know who St. Andrew is or who St. Francis yeah. is, or it, it, in some ways it also doesn't matter. One thing I do know about um, Bridget Riley, funnily enough, is that she is born in Norwood. And only yesterday I was doing some reading about Pissarro, mm-hmm. Camille Pissarro, who's the father of Impressionism. He came to London. And he, he he lived in Norwood for a while. Brilliant. So two connections there. Anyone who lives in Norwood? Yeah. Got a fantastic, <laughs> got a fantastic artistic. But now, so here's a connection. Yeah, come on. So why my, why you picked why you picked the painting? 
So, or are we not on that yet? Yeah, no, we are right there. So I'm trying to think because I can. This is to do with playing a record, <laughs> and it would that record player was in. It was in my bedroom in Ealing, so I am maybe fourteen or fifteen years old. And this was a record released in 1970. It could have been mine. I'll have to look through my record collection, or it could have been my brother's. It's by a rock band. Some might even call them a heavy metal band. I'm not sure that's the right term, actually. Mm. Uh, Black Sabbath. Mm. (laughs) Now... Some of those listening may not know the music of Black Sabbath, and some certainly will. Mm. Ozzy Osbourne was the lead singer, and, you know, they sang about um, Iron Men and losing my mind and, you know... (laughs) Sounds like a normal day at the office. (laughs) Witchcraft, and it's all very heavy. and But I... I um, I, uh, remember putting this final disc on and again it was interesting i was just uh, talking to my nephew the other day and try explaining to him what a vinyl disc was yeah and that you would drop it on the front of the of the disc and basically it would then play let's say four or five tracks and 20 minutes later you'd have to turn it over and play the other and in some ways it was great because speaking as somebody who loves narrative some of these albums, they thought, well, many of these albums, they thought very hard about what the first track was going to be and the second, the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and then the turnover, and then the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, yeah. the tenth. Yeah. Some, of course, were you know, Pink Floyd or or um, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, or some of them actually, The Who, famously, they would be stories. It would go from track to track, mm-hmm. and you couldn't change the order because there was actually telling a narrative. Yes. Um, I mean, Pink Floyd famously with The Wall. Um, uh, and of course, what happens these days, either people just listening to tracks yeah. or they buy the CD and I'm not even sure people do that so much anymore, maybe. But or, or automatically, I mean, I've done it. I've loaded CDs onto my Mac and then I thought, oh, I don't like tracks two, eight, nine, and I'll delete those. I'll yeah. never listen to them again. No. Or I see what they do now, people do now, is put everything on shuffle. Everything and I mean, shuffle, we, yeah. if you think about it, would always know the next track that was coming. Yeah. We did. Yeah. Because we listened to the album yeah. right the way through. And that would be a bit like going to the National Gallery and the paintings are on shuffle. <laughs> and that would throw up some interesting Wait, really connections. But, but actually, the other day I went and... Um, you know, you go into the, you know, I don't know, French 19th century or the Dutch 16th century or, and actually you can see, in fact, I went to look at a Caravaggio and alongside either side of this particular Caravaggio were two Zerberans, who's a Spanish painter. And, you know, they put there deliberately because you could see this guy painting in 1638, only three decades after, 28 years after Caravaggio died, He's copying it and he's just copying right, Caravaggio. Okay. On shuffle, you wouldn't get that. On shuffle, no. next to the Caravaggio would be anything. Well, I'd be in a right old mess, wouldn't I? And so I, you I, know, I, I but you wouldn't know, have but, a clue what was going on. 
See, I like context. I like. I think. I think context is great. Anyway, this vinyl disc. Yes, let's get back to it. Vertigo. Which so name was Vertigo? Vertigo was the name of the album, mm. and I remember again buying. So, so normally the vinyl disc was black, mm. and then you'd have that. You'd have the central sticker, and normally just said the name of the album. But people started to experiment a bit, and over the next few years, I remember buying, you know, a white vinyl. I think it was the tubes or uh, yeah it was the tubes uh and i think in the garage i've got one which is blue vinyl and but this one was really interesting by black sabbath because that this image yes uneasy center es- uneasy center is essentially the image that's in the middle of the album mm. now the reason i remember this because i can distinctly remember like 10 years old putting this album on our album on, standing over the record player and watching it yeah. go around yeah. and it's playing tricks in my mind with mm. my eyes it's mm. like, because now it would be really interesting to know whether they I, I should try and find the album whether they credit Bridget Riley or whether Bridget Riley ever said anything I mean seven years later they've changed it yes it it's is not, different it's not quite the same no but it's essentially the same yeah. it's concentric circles mm-hmm. with a kind of that that sense of going into a hole, uh, and as it goes round, it was it's really strange the effect it has on your eyes. It's kind of revolving and sucking you in, and very. But very I clever. actually now think with uneasy center, wouldn't it be great if she had the painting on the wall in the gallery, and then next to it a piece, a, a copy even that is mm. revolving. Yeah, because this one, her one, is 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 a complete. Obviously, then you just have different patterns and things happening all over the place. Well, I mean... But going back to children, if they had that in a gallery and they were able to spin them, yeah, oh, they would love that. Which is a really interesting way of, of presenting some art because normally art's in the yeah. frame and it's in a certain you know, landscape shape, shall we say, and it's got often a pretty heavy frame yeah. and it's got light and you don't get near it and you whisper as you said the other day yeah so having art which you revolved yeah really you good fun. spun um they would love that wouldn't they what a great idea like there are some artworks where you you know you turn the lights on and off um and of course you where we get to which I, and i really enjoy these kind of things installation art yes oh, where yeah. in a sense you're walking through the artwork mm-hmm. Um, there, I, I always read if that. That's if I was going to be an artist, I would do inst- installation artworks where you walk into a room, and I would take you into different rooms. Yeah, and, and it'd be experiential, and um, I think that would be fabulous fun. Um, but in a way, you do do that with your documentaries because you have to work them all out. You can't. You, you're trying you, you, to, yeah, and that's why. Can't just start off with, like you say at the beginning with the best thing that you were yeah. using. The best thing is. But that's why the cinema is the best place to see a mm. film because you you are disengaged from the world. You've turned your phone off. The lights are low. Yeah, and so I can I can really I've got much more chance of drawing you into the film than I would ever do at home. No, yeah. I mean, even last night, to give you an example, we started to watch a new series, which we, which somebody. Had, early in the evening and said you must watch this you must watch this we turned it on and obviously the first few minutes are really important yeah the exposition is really important and there were three of us watching it and within three minutes 
two of the three were on, on looking at their phone. <laughs> now, to be fair to one of the three, <laughs> one of them was already confused by the narrative and was looking it up, and the other one was looking up the name of the actor. But, I mean, wh- whatever the legis- legitimacy of that, you've disengaged. Yes, absolutely. I would have been heading for the chocolate biscuits. <laughs> You're in the chocolate biscuits. And um, in fact, I think I had my hand in some licorice sauce. Oh, so there we go. So I mean, you know, it's all the work that the filmmaker's done to create soundscape and the, the, every word of the narrative and every bit of the mise en scene is also carefully. Yeah, yeah. It's so, all gone. So you must feel very sorry for people like that. You, you realise how much work they've put into that. That's why, you know, go to the cinema. Yes. Um, anyway, definitely one for people to look at. Her work is definitely worth looking at. Mm. Um, I and think she's fascinating in terms of where she comes in the history of art, who's influenced her, who she then influences, uh, and even if you know, even a rock band. Um, and I think we were chatting, weren't we? That I think Black Sabbath actually did acknowledge their interest in optical arts subsequently. So, I mean, it's not, you know, you might think, you know, a rock band, they've got yeah. no interest in art, but they no. cl- clearly did. Yeah. Did you actually get to see them? I did see Black Sabbath. <laughs> Were you at the front? <laughs> so, um, I went to the Hammersmith Odeon. Oh, right, excellent. And I hope that nobody comes after me for this. This is another one of those confessions, but one of my mates realised because it's like three or four of us would go, that the trick was one of you would buy the ticket. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then you'd go in, and then about two tracks into the support band, mm. they'd sneak down the corridor to the exit and open the exit door. Right. <laughs> and you could go you could go and stand outside fourth exit door down the left, and then you'd, you'd sneak in and you'd yeah. run. You definitely so, couldn't do that now. <laughs> well, I think now you probably can't get around the sides. I got into a lot of concerts like that. David Bowie at Earl's Court. Um, and, um, Fab. <laughs> so I went to see Black Sabbath and they had a support band on that I'd never heard of called Van Halen, who actually were, whether you like their music or not, but they were unbelievable. Yeah. They were one of the best live bands I've ever, ever seen. And I was very, I was just looking, I had a quick look through some of my records to see if I could find this one. I couldn't find it immediately, but I had a very eclectic. So, I mean, there's stuff in there of um, Linton Crazy Johnson and uh, dub music and uh, um, classical music and um, Nigerian King Sonny Ede. I mean, it's all, (laughs) and rock music and, Mm-hmm. I would I would listen to all sorts of stuff. Yeah, uh, but I did like rock concerts. They were just so over the top, and there's there's like a real humour about them. Mm. Like when I was like seventy eight, seventy nine. Obviously, in my school, you're either into rock or you're into kind of punk. Yeah, the thing about the punk, and the, you know, there some good tracks there, but it was there was it was kind of you know, there's no real humour there. It was all kind of like. Mm. Well, might be the humour of what we look like. Yeah. <laughs> I was more of the Clash. Clash were great. And then uh, I saw them at the Brixton Academy. I mean, if we're going to start talking about where we've been to bands, we best, we're going to have to wrap this up pretty we soon. We are. The only thing I'd say about Black Sabbath. We might have to do a podcast on music. That might be completely different. But Black Sabbath, 
do take the record as being the loudest concert cool. ever. I mean, ridiculously loud. I mean, they had so many speakers. Yes. And um, But yes. it was particularly interesting to me because I know the whole audience, well, I can't say the whole audience, but so many in the audience were like, who on earth were that for the support Support, band? yeah. I love that when that happens. And Black Sabbath were a really famous top-ranking band, but mm. everyone came out again. who were they? <laughs> um, so oh, it just goes to show, yes. you know, if, you, if you get the chance. They did a great thing, actually. I mean, they did loads of things, Van Halen. They were very clever. One of the things they do was the lead singer, a guy called Dave Lee Roth, he'd come on with a camera. Yeah. And he'd say, we're filming you tonight for the, oh, you know, yeah. for the tour video. Go mad, go wild. I was like 17, 18, but I could see the bloody thing wasn't kept in. <laughs> it was like Top of the Pops when they, you know, the, the yeah, miming. Yeah, yeah. But everyone went berserk. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, it's not plugged, there's Maybe no cables. Maybe you do that in the cinema. There's film. no cables. <laughs> when you come on and do a little q and A, I'm filming yours tonight. Could you all look a little bit lively? Yeah, ask a good question. Oh, yes. Good thinking. Here we go. Right, anyway. Okay, uh, enjoy, movement. <laughs> enjoy Bridget Riley and... Um, <laughs> Knock yourself out with optical art and yes. we'll, uh, we'll see you soon. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Painting of the Week podcast. For more information, please visit our website at seventh-art.com or contact us by emailing info at seventh-art.com. See you next time.